Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This week on The Science Revolution... Sonia Shaw, author of Pandemic, is here, and she says it's time to tell a new story about coronavirus. Our lives depend on it. Dr. Enric Sala with National Geographic tells us how the benefits of protecting 30% of the planet will outweigh the costs. Lily Eskelson-Garcia with the National Education Association, the NEA, is dropping by. How is America going to protect our children as Trump and DeVos force them back into school? And Charlie Jang with Greenpeace USA is here about how a Green New Deal and the DNC will get along. Right now, Dr. Enric Sala is on the line with us, the explorer in residence at National Geographic. He's the co-author of a new report titled Protecting 30% of the Planet for Nature, Costs, Benefits, and Economic Implications and the author of a forthcoming book, The Nature of Nature, Why We Need the Wild, which will be out this uh, August next month. His website is pristinesees.org, P-R-I-S-T-I-N-E-S-E-A-S.org. And you can tweet him at Enric underscore Sala, E-N-R-I-C underscore S-A-L-A. Dr. Sala, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining us today. I think most people who are not in the business of despoiling the planet, assume somehow that the process of despoiling the planet at least is generating, you know, some sort of social, some sort of positive good, some some sort of, you know, it's, it's making us richer, it's making our lives better. You're suggesting that the costs outweigh the benefits by five to one. Tell us about that. Yes, thank you so much for having me on your show. Um, and I think that the COVID pandemic has shown that the emperor has no clothes, that yeah. our way of operating at the global level was totally unsustainable, socially, economically, and also environmentally. And the science is telling us that if we want to prevent the collapse of our life support system, we need half of the planet in natural state and at least 30% in protected areas by 2030. But then you have the Minister of Finance asking, well, how much is this going to cost? This is not affordable. But we produced a study released uh, last week that shows that for every dollar that we put in nature, for every dollar that we invest in protected areas, nature gives us at least $5 in return. Okay. So how does this work? I mean, you know, reduce that to some practical steps. Uh, You know, take a part of the world. What do we do with it? Okay, so right now, uh, about three quarters of all the land that is inhabitable has been altered by human activities, mostly by uh, agriculture and forestry and and cities. Two-thirds of the ocean have been significantly affected by industrial fishing. 
but only 15% of the land is protected from our activities, and only 7% of the ocean is protected from fishing and other activities. So what we need to do is to increase that area protected to 30% at least by 2030, so nature can continue providing everything that we need to survive, like uh, clean air, oxygen, clean water, food. Everything we need to survive is produced by, by other species. So if we protect that 30%, that 30% will generate economic revenue and, and other benefits that are five times greater than the investment. And as an example, the sector of, at least before COVID, the sector of nature tourism in protected areas was growing on average 5% every year, while agriculture and forestry were growing only at 0.5% and fisheries were declining. They were on, on recession. If we protect forests, they will absorb rainwater and avoid huge costs from floods. And I think that this pandemic has shown the costs of not investing in nature because we had this virus that spilled over from an animal, a wild animal to a human in a market in China. And other viruses before also like SARS, MERS, HIV, Ebola, were a consequence of our encroaching upon the uh, intact forest uh, around the world. So the cost of the pandemic now, it seems that it will be $9 trillion over the next two years. You know, investing a small fraction of that in protecting nature to reduce the risk of the pandemic, I think economically it makes a lot of sense. At one level, it seems that a precondition for there being a political, a widespread political acceptance of this would be a widespread understanding of the fact that we are part of nature, that we are animals on this planet, sharing it with other animals and plants and other life forms, and that our relationship with them is not, in its healthiest state, is not one of dominance and control. Our intelligence will never match that of, uh, you know, five billion years of evolution, you know, developing natural systems that interact with each other in particular ways but that our best chance for survival and essentially prosperity, for lack of a better word, is to realize that we are part of nature and behave like it, to, to cooperate with nature rather than killing nature. And yet, you know, I turn on the TV and there's ads for weed killer. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, you yeah. know, our unsustainable practices are widespread. And I think it's because there's this belief that is probably shared by some huge percentage, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin to guess, but probably in the realm of 70 to 90 percent of all humans, that we are separate from nature, that we were created by gods who have nothing to do with nature or simply put nature here for us, and that our job and our role is to conquer and extract whatever the hell we want from nature and damn the consequences. How do we bring about that kind of a change in thinking, in culture? Yes, you are absolutely right. It's a change in culture, right? Because we do have the science. We do have the understanding. But the most difficult thing to change is human behavior, right? Because we are very good at discounting the future and at thinking short term. But I, th I truly think that this pandemic is the best opportunity we have to turn this crisis into a moment of awakening. Because it doesn't matter who you are. You can be a prince. You can be a head of a state. You can be a billionaire. All these types have got the coronavirus. 
So the health of the richest person on the planet is dependent on the health or the behavior of the poorest person on the poorest country who might be killing a chimpanzee for food or uh, capturing a pangolin to send it to China. If this doesn't change our thinking, if this doesn't convince us that we are interdependent of all of nature, no, what will? You know, I get that, but it still seems like an abstraction. I can think of things like, you know, changing the way that we teach children about science and incorporating nature into that, changing the way that our, or trying to change the way that our religions treat nature and deal with nature, trying to influence our media to portray nature in a way that is the, the human relationship to nature, either you know, portraying the horrors of the destructive way of doing it or the benefits of doing it in a constructive way. Are those the kind of things you're talking about, or is there something else? All of this, and uh, uh, the European Commission has a great example. They have a biodiversity strategy where they have decided to protect 30% of Europe's land and waters by 2030. And they have a green deal also where they are going to get to carbon neutrality by 2050. And all of the things that we need to get there, they are part of policy. Governments and businesses have to be part of it. And the European Commission has put it in very practical terms that I think can be applicable everywhere. That's remarkable. Dr. Enric Sala, the explorer in residence at National Geographic, his new book, The Nature of Nature, Why We Need the Wild. Dr. Sala, thanks so much for dropping by today. Thank you so much. So there's this fascinating story over at The Nation right now, thenation.com, of course, that website by Sonia Shah. It's titled, It's Time to Tell a New Story About Coronavirus. Our Lives Depend on It. The subtitle, The Way We Talk About Contagion Matters. It shapes how societies respond and whether many of us will survive. I should add, you are a science journalist. You're the author of the book Pandemic, Tracking Contagion from Cholera to Ebola and Beyond. Your fifth book just out in June, The Next Great Migration, Beauty and Terror of Life on the Move. And, of course, this piece here, uh, your website, Sonia Shah, S-O-N-I-A-S-H-A-H.com. story has always fascinated me. I wrote a book, The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight, basically about our relationship to nature is like one of our most destructive stories. What is the story we're telling ourselves about coronavirus right now, and what are we getting wrong? Well, I think since pretty much the advent of germ theory, we've basically thought of contagious diseases as the work of invasive germs that kind of encroach upon passive and unsuspecting populations. If that's our story, that's sort of our paradigm and our narrative about how we understand infectious diseases, and that shapes our response, which is then to either try to repel those microbes from moving. If it's in people, we say close the borders, keep them out. We can scapegoat certain populations of being the ones who are carrying it, and we try to exclude them. And then the other part of it is we try to come up with killing chemicals to kind of surgically target and destroy these invasive kind of foreign-seeming external germs. So it's kind of this paradigm of what I call microbial xenophobia. It's this idea that all these diseases caused by pathogens is like the whole issue is the pathogen itself that needs to be isolated and surgically targeted, usually with biomedical commodities. What we're missing in all of that is 
Well, there's certain inconvenient facts, of course, right? Like sometimes you have a pathogen around you and you don't actually get sick. Sometimes a person will get exposed to the pathogen and they will get very sick and a person next to them will get exposed to the same level and won't get sick at all. So obviously the the whole issue is a lot more complex than whether the pathogen is present or not. It has to do with our immunity, our exposure, how we're interacting with each other, all, all these broader things. And that's what gets obscured. So when we just focus on the pathogen and the invasiveness of it, what we miss is all the social and political environmental drivers, which ultimately might be more important in in controlling the diseases once they emerge and also preventing them from erupting in the first place. So you've got these two pieces, controlling them before they emerge and dealing with the eruptions. You point out in your article that so many of our diseases are actually uh, zoonotic diseases. They, they're diseases that we got from animals. And, you know, certainly COVID-19 is one of those. Came out of bats via perhaps another species. MERS uh, via camels, probably also originated with bats. SARS, civet cats, I think it was. So what, you know, so I get that, you know, like, okay, we, if we stop destroying natural habitats where there may be reservoirs of infections that have not previously infected the human race, we uh, diminish the chance that we're going to come up against something like COVID-19 to which we have no natural immunity. But that kind of throws us back into germ theory, but in an environmental context anyway, am I, am I getting this or is there a piece here I'm missing? Yeah, I think that's right. But I think if you look at sort of the broader picture, we see that since 1940, we've had hundreds of these pathogens either newly emerge or reemergence in new places where they've never been seen before. So this one is just the latest in a long line of pathogens that have been kind of traveling along this pathway. And about 60% of them come from the bodies of animals, like you said. 70% are from bodies of wild animals. And on a broad scale, what's happening is that people are invading wildlife habitat, and that destroys a lot of wildlife, of course. It's why we have this huge biodiversity crisis where we're losing 150 species every day. But the creatures that remain have to cram into smaller and smaller fragments of habitat that we leave behind for them, which means they're in more intimate contact with us. And like any living thing on the planet, you know, when microbes find a new habitat to exploit, they do that. And they, you know, they use that new area. And so that's what's happening is we are driving animals closer towards us. And that allows the microbes that live harmlessly inside of their bodies to start exploring ours. And in the beginning, that first confrontation is very violent. We don't have any immunity to these things. So that's why so many of us are getting sick from these novel pathogens. But the bigger picture is this is about our interactions with each other and with nature and the landscape. So how do we begin changing our stories in our culture? I mean, they're endemic, they're embedded, they're in the Bible. I mean, there are assumptions of governance. There are those, you know, Dan Quinn and others who suggest that this all goes back to agriculture when we thought we could rise up and control nature, that that's why God condemned Cain and blessed Abel, because Cain was the farmer, you know, and oh, you know, you're cursed. Is it that simple? I think we've had different paradigms about how to understand contagious diseases. If you go back far enough, and we, Hippocrates said it was all about miasmas and these smelly airs and gases and clouds that, you know, if you breathe them in, that that's what would make you sick. And that was our understanding of contagious diseases for thousands of years. When we were living through malaria and tuberculosis and cholera pandemics, that's how we thought that those things were making us sick. And we had a 
major shift with germ theory, which was in the 19th century. And I think we are coming to the point, and, and germ theory really was about let's reduce this complicated infectious disease process that involves like all these different factors into just a host, a germ, and an incursion, and that's it. And then we can just kind of surgically focus on this like microscopic kind of interaction, hyper-reductionist. And, you know, that works fine. Like that worked well for diseases we had already basically controlled, right? We had already basically controlled malaria, TB, cholera, a lot of the diseases that were hugely burdensome on Western societies had mostly been controlled by then thanks to social reforms, you know, because we had better housing, we had better infrastructure, we had better sanitation, hygiene, all of that. And that was done through a lot of hard work of activists, you know, trying to change society, and they did. And so germ theory works insofar as when we don't have a huge amount of disease around, we can use drugs, antibiotics, vaccines. All of those things really help control diseases that we already kind of knew about and had reduced transmission opportunities for them already. But now what we see with new diseases, you know, when we have an Ebola outbreak, when we have a Zika out of nowhere, when we have new Lyme, you know, new tick-borne diseases like Lyme and others, we can't produce antibiotics and medicines and vaccines fast enough to protect us from that first wave of disease when they first come into human populations, which, as we're seeing right now, is the most sort of destructive one. What's step one? I, well, I think we need to start telling a new story. I think we need to start understanding how our health is not just about the absence of a certain pathogen, but it's connected to the health of other populations, of our wildlife, of our ecosystems more generally. Brilliant. Brilliant. Sonia Shaw, her piece is the latest cover story in Nation Magazine. It's time to tell a new story about coronavirus. Check out our books, Pandemic and The Next Great Migration. Sonia, thanks so much for dropping by. Thank you. I'm very pleased to have with us right now Lily Eskelson Garcia, the president of the National Education Association, the NEEA. Lily's Twitter handle is Lily, L I L Y underscore N E A, or N E A Today. And of course, NEA.org is the National Education Association's website. Lily, welcome to the program. How is America going to protect our children from Trump and DeVos? This seems like it's in particular going to fall, just like right now, people with college educations, largely affluent white people, can work from home, generally speaking, without a problem. They tend to have jobs where they can work from home. Brown and black people, not so much, and poor mm-hmm. white people as well. And therefore, people like myself who can work from home, I'm kind of insulated from this disease. I think that that's probably true of kids as well, that the wealthy white kids who go to private schools that have now fancy distant learning programs and things like that, they're gonna be fine. But the poorer kids, the minority kids, they're going to be pushed into schools. I love your tone because everyone should be that exasperated. We're being given this false choice of, all right, look at our schools need to be disinfected and we, we need all these things to dis- we, we have to do this. So we have these unsafe schools. Do we keep them closed or do we open the unsafe schools? wrong. (laughs) Those are not Mm -hmm. your two choices. And I'm a sixth grade teacher from the great state of Utah. I have had 39 sixth graders, 12-year-old kids, all in this jam-packed in that little room with one working window propped open when it's 95 degrees outside. That was not safe and healthy before the pandemic. But let me tell you, there is no one 
who wants those schools open and open safely more than America's teachers and the support staff that went away for, okay, maybe their parents want them in school a little bit more than we do. But as a sixth grade teacher, and I represent over 3 million school teachers and school secretaries, bus drivers, custodians, librarians, nurses, the whole, the whole village that serves that child. Any one of us is more qualified to know what we're talking about than Betsy DeVos. And here we have a president who hesitated about you know, saying, well, it's not up to me to tell people to wear a mask. Of course, we are mystified and disturbed beyond disturbed to say that guy is the one that just opened his mouth one day at a press conference and said, all schools, all students open on the same day. Kids packed into those schools just like they were. Don't talk to me about creative, you know, shifts and distancing and all of that. Just put them all back in there. Close the door because we need their parents back on the job. So warehouse the kids done here. Done. A man who has no authority to order school teachers or staff to do anything. No power to make the threat that he made. By the way, he said, I'll take away your federal school funding. Federal school funding is very little of a school budget, but it goes to our most vulnerable kids. It's special education. It's the school lunch program for poor kids. So he gets up there and says, I order you, I command you, without any resources to do it safely, I command all kids to be sitting shoulder to shoulder in those overcrowded classrooms on the same day and all kids all together. It was beyond reckless. It was mm. unbelievably dangerous. So you asked a question, what can we do? We can stop listening to Donald Trump and Betsy DeVos. Do not pay attention to a word that comes out of their mouths. Uh, who would have thought? But I'm serious about this. I'm telling school board members, I'm telling panic teachers, he has no authority to command you to do anything, and he has no authority to threaten your vital funding for school services like special ed. So the first thing you do is just turn off the TV Stop listening to him and get to work on doing it right. Get to work on a plan that would make sense for your community. And it's going to look very different if you're in Detroit or if you're in a tiny little broken bow, Oklahoma. It's going to look very different because the infection rate in that community can be very different because whether or not you have an overcrowded classroom or extra space you can use. And it's also going to look different because, well, we are in panic mode for this because we've mm. all been told now that just like a business where people stopped coming to the restaurant, people stopped shopping at the store, your revenue fell off, they went, looks like we're going to have to lay people off, maybe go bankrupt. That's happening to school funding around the country. Our school funding comes from tax dollars. And so if no one's the sales tax, the income tax, even the property tax, a third of people aren't making their, their mortgage payments or their rent payments. So the funding revenue to pay for schools has fallen off a cliff just when we need more because there is no disinfectant and face mask budget in any school district's budget. So we have been begging 
Mitch McConnell to take up the HEROES Act that was passed by the House. He went on vacation, said, I'll get around to it when I feel like it. He went on vacation, and he said, first of all, you remember him saying when it was like, are you going to help local government? By the way, local government includes your local public school. He said, well, maybe they should go bankrupt. So instead of saying, we want to open schools safely when it's time and in the places where it's safe to open them safely. We need a plan to distance, disinfect the PPE face masks. And by the way, the health screenings are are healthy people walking into that building. Instead of saying, of course, that's our priority. How are we going to fund that? He said, no, just just don't worry about it. Just open up the schools, put the kids back in the way they were. And that jeopardizes their health. It jeopardizes the health of their teachers and all the support staff in that school. And some of our folks are starting to feel that we're being punished. We'll show you. We will force you to go into well, these unsafe Betsy DeVos has privatized half of the schools in my home state in Michigan and right. seems hell-bent for leather to do it to the rest of the country. And this would be a great way to destroy public schools. One wonders if they're looking at this going, hey, an opportunity. This isn't just a problem. It's an opportunity. We can take well, down these public schools. You are absolutely spot on there. Uh, there has been nothing that Betsy DeVos has been involved in that hasn't been to say, is there a way to take public school students' dollars and funnel it to private schools and for-profit charters? And uh, again, that is what she's doing here. It really does feel like they are, well, if you were being generous, you'd just say it's idiotic to not have a plan. That's being generous or sinister they actually have a plan to create chaos and an unhealthy situation as the pretext to, oh, now, you know, we're going to have to all go to those online charter schools because there's lots of those getting funded, especially in Michigan. But let's put it all online and we don't need that public school that is so unsafe because that was the plan. Yeah, grim thinking. I'm starting to imagine that these people have levels of malice that, frankly, were unimaginable before. But Lily Escalon Garcia, the president of the National Education Association, NEA.org. Lily, thanks so much for dropping by. President President Garcia, thanks so much for dropping by. It's great talking to you. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. 
Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So how is the Democratic platform going to shake out, particularly as it comes to climate? Greenpeace USA, greenpeace.org slash USA has been working on the Democrats, people on the platform committee trying to get some some good stuff in there. Charlie Jang is with us. Charlie is a climate campaigner with Greenpeace USA fighting for the Green New Deal. Charlie, welcome to the program. Tell us about the conversations and efforts you are undertaking to influence the fate and future of the Democratic platform here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tom. Well, Greenpeace has been fighting for a long time to ensure that elected officials take bold, ambitious, and just action to address not just the climate crises, but all the crises we face together. So we have been pressuring presidential candidates all up and down the past year to include a really strong position on tackling the climate crisis with a Green New Deal and with a plan to ensure managed phase-out of fossil fuel production. The latest DNC Climate Crisis Council platform represents a pretty solid win, in my view, for how the baseline for action from even uh, the Democratic Party has shifted dramatically in the last year. We don't have a vice presidential candidate yet. I'm assuming that that person, if Joe Biden picks somebody who is, well, we'll just use conventional terms, moderate, you know, if, if he picks an Amy Klobuchar, although she's taken herself out of the race, but, you know, somebody, somebody like her. I would think that that would have influence on the platform versus his picking somebody who is more progressive. Or do you think that those processes are independent? I believe the platform finally gets ratified at the convention, but at what point in the process does the DNC or the platform committee say, okay, this is pretty much our final draft. This is what we're going to take to the convention. Well, the, the DNC has announced their platform drafting committee, and now Greenpeace obviously is not a Democratic Party organization, so we are you know, pushing from the outside. We're not endorsing candidates. We're not endorsing the DNC in this case. So we are really encouraging the Democratic Party, elected officials and candidates, including Biden, to adopt as many of these really strong policy frameworks as possible, whether through the platform process or through, you know, through Biden's own continued efforts to engage with the community and release stronger plans. Are you getting pushback or are you getting enthusiasm? What sort of response are you experiencing? I'd say from Vice President Biden, you know, we've definitely seen that he needs to win over young voters. He needs to win over people of color who are really concerned about the climate crisis and about the ways that systemic racism and now the COVID crisis are accelerating all the challenges our communities face. I think we are seeing promising signs that a Biden administration would really prioritize climate action on day one. 
but we need to keep up the pressure. You know, we need to ensure that they continue to see that voters are demanding this sort of action uh, from our next president. Yeah, it's a good step. We're talking with Charlie Jang, a climate campaigner with Greenpeace USA. Final question, Charlie. How can people who want to ally themselves with Greenpeace participate in this process or help it? Or you know, what can the average person do to, to help encourage the Democratic Party to embrace things like the Green New Deal? I'd say there are so many ways. I mean, the first is to be vocal with elected officials, with candidates, with members of Congress. Many members of Congress are part of the both parties, right, party or, um, operations. So we just need our, our politicians to hear from people, whether that's calling, emailing or tweeting about the kinds of actions you want them to take. And of course, making sure that we get everyone to the polls in November or ensure everyone can vote safely by mail. We're going to need to continue to yeah, make our voices heard, um, both in the public forums that we have available to us and at the ballot box. Great. Charlie Jang, a climate campaigner with Greenpeace USA. Greenpeace.org slash USA is the website. Charlie's uh, Twitter handle is C-H-A-R-L-I-E-Y-J-12. Do I have that right, Charlie? That's right. At Greenpeace USA as well. Charlie, great talking with you. Thank you so much for dropping by today. Thanks so much for having me. Charlie Zhang with Greenpeace USA. And Greenpeace, of course, just one of the great organizations, one of the, you know, really all-American organizations. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.